Welcome to our podcast. Before I get started, we know that many of you want to explore our courses, and we want an easy way for you to do that. So we created several complimentary workshops that give you the opportunity to taste our unique brand of experiences. To reserve your spot, visit view.life slash explore, or click the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Art of Accomplishment, where we explore how deepening connection with ourselves and others leads to creating the life we want with enjoyment and ease. I'm Brett Kistler, here with my co-host, Joe Hudson. This week, we're going to go into a much-requested topic about Joe's history. We cover the first part of his life from a relatively standard modern start to being kicked out of his house as a 13-year-old, getting a green mohawk, and collecting spiritual tools from around the world. So, Joe, tell us what fucked you up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. Uh, <laughs> pretty early on. Uh, I mean, if you think, if I think about my first seven years, I, the that one was, you know, that was probably as far as like zero to 18, probably the most, um, most functional part of my childhood. Um, there were some issues, but. And, and also it's that time when so much and, and like so much of your basic attachment issues, you know, get, get created in that time frame. And I remember that was the time when I had the strongest relationship with my father. I would, I remember coming home and I remember, um, there was just like, they're always looking forward to him being around and him always looking forward to us. And that was. I think, I think pivotal. I don't know if I really, I don't know what, how life would have been without that. And where, where was this to get, to kind of get some context? Where were you growing up? What was that? Yeah. The situation? first seven years were in like suburban, rich suburban Connecticut. Um, and, but after that, like by the time I was 28, I'd lived 26 places or something like that. I, I mean, I couldn't go back and count it, but I've been saying that so long that it feels like that's probably what's mm-hmm. right. Um, but, but I was, there was a time where we were moving every six months. So, but the first seven years were in Darien, Connecticut. And, and the way that, that, what happened there, the, 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 the thing that affected me there was that my mom was, uh, you know, was working and she was, she was one of the first people like in that upper middle-class white, um, culture that the, where the woman was working. And so, and my mom, in fact, uh, uh, will proudly tell you the story that she had many men who were her suitors and she picked the one that she didn't particularly love at first, but who would allow her to have a career and kids. And mm-hmm. so that was like a very important thing to her. And so, she, and due to some weird circumstances, she had to go to work. She was a professor uh, shortly after I was born. And, and so my mom was, was a bit overwhelmed and her parenting style was, you know, I would say a bit rigid at the time that, you know, it was very like, um, uh, like the, like the job was to train me when to go to the bathroom so that she could change diapers on a schedule, you know, at Mm, like at a very early age. And so there was not really the, you know, not that she thought of it as bad in any way, but it was very, at that point, what it really taught me was that my needs weren't going to get met. So it took me probably until my thirties to realize that I like early thirties, late twenties that I er even had needs, you know, when people were like, Oh, 
do you have any needs? And I'd say, yes, water, food, and shelter, air maybe. And like, I had no idea that there was things, there was needs out there to thrive. It was only needs to survive in my mind. So and, what, what did you have in, in place of needs? It sounds like like schedule or some like outside imposed structure. What was, what was the thing that was, was there instead? That's a great question. Yeah. The, the, what was there was my duty to make sure that everything was, was calm, (laughs) you know, like there was a duty to make sure that things didn't get too overwhelming, which was, you know, obviously impossible for a young, for, for me, I was a young boy with a tremendous amount of energy. So, um, and, and, you know, had like a, a abnormally high IQ. And so, so I was constantly getting into stuff, but that was the job. Like that was the felt sense of the job at a young age was to, because of course my mom was just deeply overwhelmed with everything that was going on. And, and, and it was, and she had had a situation where her mom, her dad died at an early age. And so she had really not deeply explored her emotional self and there was no room for that in her childhood. And so there was not, not a lot of room for my emotional world. So some of my earliest memories were being made fun of for crying. And so, mm-hmm. so the needs weren't just a physical need, but the need, like the emotional needs were also not an acceptable thing. At least some of the emotions weren't an acceptable thing. And so what happened for me was just to even know that I emotions were something that were, that was important, but, you know, happened in my thirties and, and to know that I had needs, you know, and then, and then to learn how to identify them and learn how to ask for them was like a, a huge journey for me. It was a really significant journey later in life because of that. And, and the other thing I think was that the, the relationship was very much, um, um, wanting a level of, of affection and nurturing, particularly from my mom that, that wasn't there. I had it with my dad in the early years. I felt that deeply in that experience, but I didn't, I didn't feel it as much with my mom. When I got sick, I would have it. She'd be very nurturing and caring. I remember enjoying being sick because I would get like this level of care and nurturing and attunement that I didn't really get otherwise. Um, you know, and, and, and I can tell just Mm -hmm. given her mom, like how much more attuned and how much more now from this perspective, but as a kid, you don't know that at all. And so Mm. all that was there was just this desire to be, yeah, to be held in in a way that wasn't, that wasn't available. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious there to what extent that loving, loving, having her take care of you when you were sick, like liking being sick for that reason. I wonder how much that relates back to like having learned that love was being, having your bodily state be managed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, it was, I think that's another thing that was interesting. My parents very much didn't, weren't into sports. I I had eye issues when I was young. I had a lazy eye and, um, and so they didn't want me to fail. And so they, they didn't, they didn't want to teach me failure. So they didn't allow me to do sports, which I think created, modern research would say probably created more proprioception issues. And so I had a lot of those as well, where I was, you know, very nerdy, clumsy glasses, you know, didn't have the same kind of balance and stuff like that. And so there was something about the body, the body in my family was very much 
not, you know, it was the mind that was the intelligence that was really important. The body wasn't, and the body was to be controlled. And, and so there was definitely huge portions of my life where I wasn't, I wasn't in harmony with my body. I was overriding my body or telling my body, like not listening to its intelligence. And I would say that's actually still to this day, that's probably a place where like it requires the most, and it's like the most energy and attention is to to remember to keep on coming, not on an emotional, like I know my experiential body from tons of meditation, but as far as the, the care of my body to you know make sure that exercise happens and everything that still requires more attention. It's not automatic in my system as it would be if it was, you know, if I was taught that or the mm-hmm. age. Yeah. Yeah. So something I'm, I'm noticing so far is that, um, what you're describing sounds, sounds like a pretty common Western kind of modern yeah. experience of upbringing. Like a lot of our, a lot of our parents have had similar kind of starting places in their, in their parenting style. And, you know, people entering like women entering the workforce more and like sort of the American experiment shifting more to the, the dual working family from what other traditional forms had existed. And I'm curious what, if anything contributed to the pendulum swinging in the other direction later in your life to be so heavily invested and interested in your, your emotional that, freedom. That happens in the, then the teenage years. Like I think the seed for that happened in the teenage years. So, you know, parenting now, what like I see is that there's like the will starts coming online for the kid or the independence. There's like some big thing that happens at around three and another one that happens around seven and then another one that happens around 10 and another one that happens around 13 where the, where the, kid's job is to create more autonomy or they have that friction between like, I want autonomy and I want care. And, and so when that started kicking in for me, call it like at around 10 years old ish, a couple of things happened simultaneously. One is I was, um, I was, we lived in Saudi Arabia and then, or we lived in Iran, excuse me, and then had to move back to New York because the the revolution that happened in Iran in 1978 and 9 and and then the only school we could get into was this public school where my sister and I were the only white kids in the school and and I was like beat up on a regular basis and and it's occasionally protected because people had a crush on my sister. So occasionally I get, it was kind of like, I, I got, I got allowed to get beat up X amount, but not, not past X amount because it was like, you know, you, 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 it, if they protected me too much there, that was an issue. But if they didn't, then, you know, like it wouldn't get my sister's, uh, you know, attention approval or whatnot. So, so that happened. So I had a lot of you know, I just seen a war evacuated that stress moved into a hotel in New York city for X amount of time, just stuck in a hotel as kids and then moved into, um, into New York city all the time of this movement happening in me to be create more independence. And so I'm dealing with all this trauma and, um, and at the same time, this is when my dad is like, I, where a kid normally stops seeing their dad is like this beautiful, wonderful, like can't can't mess up anything. Mo, you know, my dad was my hero, 
And then I was starting to rebel against my father and my father was not taking it well. Right. And it, I think all that stress also really increased his alcohol use and, uh, or maybe it was just mm -hmm. lots of alcohol use built on itself. And so I was dealing with the one person where I was getting that attunement and they were angry at me regularly yelling at me regularly, um, disappointed in me regularly and, and, and mood swinging, like the way alcoholic alcoholism does. And so, so, so my sister obviously dealt with this as well, but it was different. She played the role in the family of like the good diligent kid. And I started to play the role of the rebel. And so I think a large portion of my desire to, uh, and I think blessing is that there was that role because that role was going to push me into places where my parents didn't approve. And for a while that was drugs for a while that was Mohawks for a while that was, you know, skateboarding and, and, you know, smoking cigarettes and, um, and, and drinking at young ages and all that stuff. And, uh, but then eventually, you know, by the time I'm in my twenties, it was trying to find alternative ways of seeing the world that weren't, my parents' way of seeing the world, which was my dad was very business-oriented, very money-oriented, and my mom was very science-oriented. And so I looked for the place that wasn't science or business. And 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 I think I think there's also <laughs> a natural desire to, to to explore this area just because I was looking for relief. It was really fucking painful. Like by the time I hit hit my 20s, like existence fucking hurt. It just fucking hurt. Like the negative voice in my head was so loud, right? That the the criticism of my dad and my mom at the time um was just very it, like i had taken it on it would become the voice in my head and it was it was brutal like the i mean I, I i had some depression easily in my like in my like by 19 years old there was some depression happening because there was just this constant negative self-abuse and and i wasn't crying i wasn't having any emotional experience I was just only allowed to be angry. And so, and, and that, that 10 years old was like just the mm. beginning of it. By the time I was 13 years old, I would sit at a dinner table and I would get yelled at for like an hour and a half every night. Just, just yelled. My dad was deep in the alcoholism at this time and maybe yelling. And I'd be like, fine, dad, you're right. And he said, see, I told you you were fucking weak and you would quit. Like it was that level of like verbal, just barraging on a regular basis. And, and there was, I'd say a subconscious agreement that it was like my fault. It was, I was the problem. And it was, and that was a conscious agreement. The subconscious agreement in the family was, uh, okay, he's, he's mad at him. So not at me, like, like, you know, that the, everybody else was like, Oh, thank God that it's not. But there was also this moment, like, can't you just be nice? Can't you, you know, can't you also just acquiesce to this, whatever this is happening in this? So I felt very isolated. So you were the, you were the scapegoat in the dynamic, keeping, keeping the game in play. Yeah, I was that. I was also like the, I would say in like family therapy thought process, I was the crucible that kept the parents' marriage alive, meaning that I was, I was the problem that they could, they could like come together over. So mm. You know, I would, I, I, at this point I'm like, obviously didn't want to be home. So I would just like leave and, 
one point they kicked me out and they had this list of things that I had to do to come back and I wouldn't sign the list. And, you know, like cops had to take me into the social services. It was, it was brutal. Right. And I'm 13 at the time, you know, and, and, and I was like trying to figure out how to live away from home, trying to figure out how to literally, I was like trying to figure out, can I rent a room if I tutor? Cause I had really good grades at the time. And I, could I tutor kids and make enough money to pay for rent and food and go to school. And when I went to the counselor to talk about that, the cops came and picked me up, called me incorrigible, took me to social services. Wow. Like it was, yeah, there was, there was right. And, and then, so that part was interesting. So if I, if I, if I want to, I want to go back to this. So the, the first part was the kind of the attunement attachment issues, what happened in those first years, what was happening in the second years was, was, um, I was learning deeply learning that I had to do it all myself, that there was nobody who was going to be there for me and that I was going to be emotionally abandoned, that love was emotional abandonment and that, and, and th- though there was these moments with my mom where I did feel her love, like there's a way that she would support me. There's also a way she would fight through me at the time where like, you know, like I would kind of be her knight. And, and so there was like both of those things happening. So there were some ways that I felt, you know, like virile and, um, but there was, there, what there wasn't going to be there for me was that somebody was going to take care of me. So I was going to, and I was going to be emotionally abandoned. Um, what's interesting is that I never felt materially abandoned, meaning that my, what my dad would do, which was amazing was that, um, like if I ever got in trouble, which I did regularly, like went to jail a couple of times, uh, just for like little stuff. Um, never, never had charges pressed, but you know, being a rebel, like it just, and my dad would just come and pick me up and say, okay, what are we going to do? Like it never, I'd never got in trouble for any of that. He was just like, yeah, wow. the cops that, yeah, there was like, never, it was just like, he was very supportive I mean, in those moments, which was really fascinating. And also, yeah, what a mind fuck. <laughs> I never thought on, about on the that. one hand to be like, yeah. okay, well, if the, if the cops are, if you're in trouble with the cops, everything's, Hey, you're, you're good. You're good. You're good. And then at the dinner table, rah! <laughs> it's like, it's like nobody else gets to beat yeah. up on you, but me almost is the energy. Yeah. And yes, there was that, there was like this a very upset over things like, you know, maybe the coffee, you know, whatever I'd messed up a coffee machine or that like I, I criticized something or I didn't like, I didn't wear the bathing suit that he had bought me. That that was like a, like a, I remember that particular fight in the hotel room. It was like so bad because he had a bathing, he had a Speedo that he wanted me to wear and I wouldn't wear it. But getting, going to the jail for the night and getting picked up, he was just totally cool. <laughs> yeah. I can't get the picture now out of my head of you in a Speedo. How it was blue with like little, I, you can't, you know, you, the thing is, <laughs> the thing is I never wore it. And so that was the thing he really wanted. He had a matching one. He really, and, and all of his anger towards me in retrospect now was him like feeling unloved. That's what it all was. It was like, he thought that I, like he still wanted me to admire him and love him and want to be him. And what he couldn't see was that I, all I wanted was his love and, and appreciation. Um, hmm. So, so it was just this, yeah, so it was a really fascinating time. But the, what I learned there is that 
you know, and which also the, it wasn't until my thirties where I, well, yeah, thirties where I started to undo this one too, which was like, I, I was constantly when I noticed for myself and others, when you're, when you get taught, you have to be self-reliant. It's really great. And it makes you successful in business in many ways or can, um, but what it also does is it makes it really hard. You make it really hard for people to help you because you never trust it because you get angry a lot. So there was like a whole bunch of anger issues that I had to deal with. There was a whole bunch of self-reliance issues that allowed it really, really difficult for people to be able to support me. Um, it allowed intimacy was really challenging to let love in was really challenging, all those things. And, and then constantly creating it so people would emotionally abandon me. So that, that was all happening. Mm-hmm. And, and that, okay. that's what that, that's how that got created. Yeah. Got it. So, so going into your twenties, you've got this super abusive voice in the head. You're depressed, you're miserable. At what point, I mean, th- that's where many people stay and they also don't necessarily recognize like, Oh, there's an abusive voice in my head until they show up to a workshop and explore it. So I'm, I'm curious, what had you start to recognize something was going on that there was something you could yeah. Explore the, and change. I think there's another thing that was happening was that like the narcissism had set in at this point. Right. And by the time my twenties are coming up, like I'm feeling better than people like that, that protection that is mm. necessary in that world, because the, the, it's like, like there, there's, I think there's this reality that happens with kids, which is like, if I really allow the truth in, it means like, oh, my parents can't take care of me the way that I need to be taken care of. And that's like an untenable truth for a child. And and so instead, what happened was that I created this like very big wall of protection, which I would call narcissism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean narcissism, like narcissistic personality disorder kind of stuff. I'm, I'm, I just mean trait like, narcissism, not. Yeah. 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 But like, I was feeling like I, I was often protecting myself by feeling I was better, very judgmental, um, emotional, like constipation, uh, wasn't able to cry. Yeah. All those things, mm. all those things were happening. And so I was not really available, but very much still yearning for the affection and still yearning for someone to take care of me. Mm. And to what extent were you aware of that yearning? Not at all. Not at all. So what, yeah. So what happened was, so I think the seed of it was actually in, in Catholicism, you know, I, I, I took a lot of solace in, um, in, in CCD and the stories of Jesus. Like it, it was the only thing that felt somewhat real to me. Um, the, like the, the parables, the, particularly the parables of Jesus, like they felt very like there was something there in my young ages and I would like correct the CCD teacher. So I get, in tr- I would get in trouble there. It was like, not only was I rebellious, but I was like capable of being rebellious in like the most annoying of ways. And so, uh, but there was something there that touched me and I got really into deeply into religion and religious studies. So by the time I go to college, um, I got kicked out of my, my first college with, with like a 3.95, but I got kicked out for, behavior of basically rebelling against everything I could rebel against, mm-hmm. including myself, frankly, at the time. And, um, there's more detail on that story in some of the early episodes. So the, but that rebellion, um, 
it it like it with the way it paid off was like I meet like I got into Herman Hess, I got into the stories of Jesus. And so when I got to college, I just was like, I'm not taking this like 101 class. I'm gonna go and substitute it for like an advanced religious studies course. So I studied Taoism, I studied like Herman Hess, I studied and I, that's where I was I was deeply interested in these alternative ways of looking at at um of life and, and spirituality and whatnot. And so I, I started to deeply take a look at that and, but it was all very heady. It was all very intellectual, but it opened the door. It was like the seed was planted that there was like this other alternative that transformation was possible. Um, that there was another way mm. of looking at it and just like reading uh, like the texts of Twangs. I, 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 I basically, in my twenties, I collected parables of every different religion and saw that a lot of them were the same, studied a lot of religions and, and how they were doing the same thing. And so that was, I think the very seed of it. But then the real work didn't start until like the meditation retreat. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm curious when you said like that they planted the seed that helped you realize that transformation was possible. What was, what had you recognized that it was transformation and not salvation or some other concept Hmm. That's a great question. That was possible. Well, I think or it was basically because, or... yeah, I think it was the, I think transcendence was in there for sure. Uh, uh, but salvation wasn't in there because I was self-reliant. There's no fucking way salvation was going to happen. Mm. You know, that like it, it, like my, there was a whole bunch of stuff that I had to go over, get over. Like, I'm not going to hell that there's no, like, you know, like there's no heaven and hell and that kind of stuff. And like, that I was taught in Catholic church, um, that I, that I need and the guilt part, like, hmm. but the, but the idea of being saved was like, that's not happening. Like that, that's not, it couldn't even be a part of my reality. And, 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 you know, as we think about it now, I see that oftentimes the way that we relate to our parents is the way that we relate to God is the way that we relate to money. So if we're constantly trying to get our parents love. We're often trying to get money or if we, feel like our authority figure was never going to save us. And usually we don't believe that God is ever going to save us. And so that's, I think that's where it really came from. Like there was just luck in it. There was mm. like, if I was in a different role in the family, I'm not sure if I'd ever really be here, but the, the, yeah, the all that I think is needed or a is a different path entirely to something like here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the, but I think what's needed is, Oh, there's a, the belief that there's change possible and, and that there is a, and then the, the drive for that. And if you have those two things, I think that that's all that's really necessary. In other words, if you're listening to the podcast, you have everything that's necessary because you have those two things. If you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. So the, so the seed was planted and you recognize that transformation was possible. It wasn't something yeah. that you were seeking like salvation or anything outside of you. You looked yeah. for transformation and that you could do it. Um, yeah. But I don't think the work really, there was a, there was like, that was all intellectual. That was like reading books and like ha trying to mm. figure it out. And then there was like, Oh, then there was like the body experience that happened. And there was the emotional experience that happened. And then it was like, Oh, and that yeah. happened because of really, I would say happened because of my wife. My, so mm. In twenties, my twenty, like twenty six, whatever. I can't. I'm not good with dates. But met Tara like within three months. Got engaged, 
and uh, married like whatever year and a half after that. I can't remember something to that effect. And it was got really dysfunctional really, really quickly. But before it got dysfunctional, she, you know, and like we're in the love phase and it's like the, the engagement happened. And one of the things that she was very adamant about was that doing a 10 day meditation retreat. And I was like, yeah, we got, I got to do a 10 day meditation retreat. And was I just was kind of like, it was that young male energy. And it was like, I, I can do that. I can just, I can be silent for 10 days. That was like the big challenge, like <laughs> hiking them out. I had no idea that it was like, I was doing like one of those hardcore Vipassana ones. I had no idea. I'd never meditated before. I had no idea of the pain of sitting still for whatever it is, 12 hours a day. Didn't know that that was the toughest part. And, um, but that was the beginning. That was, that's, that's when the thing started in earnest or, or moved out of the head into the body Hmm. And I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, but I, th- I feel like it's an important story to tell again, if I have, um, but basically in that meditation, you sit still and you just learn to focus your mind for the first three days. And then at the end of day three or the beginning of day four or something like that, you move your attention up and down. And I had this moment of, uh, oneness with the universe at that, that thing, it lasted about eight seconds. And it was during the first solid sit that I did moving the attention around. And all of a sudden I was just like, and everything fucking disappeared. And I was the universe and the universe was me. It was just a very felt sensation of that. And, Mm. and I disappeared would be another way to say it. And, and all the Buddhists have, I'm sure have like a very specific, you know, word for this particular kind of opening. And, um, and, but what that was, was like God's little heroin dose. It was like, like, that was like, that gave, <laughs> that gave me just enough that the rest of my fucking life was about, that's fucking possible. Mm-hmm. I am going to do whatever the fuck I have to do to get there. What was so and, attractive about it? So like you, you described this in sort of the, the heady way of like, yeah, I was one with the universe, but what, what made eight seconds of that like heroin and that you wanted it so badly? The, my, my, my ego was gone. Like the thing that the, the constant editor of life, the, the separation, the, 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 you know, the thing that, you know, in the ultimate sense, the thing that I was taught my whole life, which is that like, I was a separate and I was a problem that was gone. It was, like I was just one with everything. There was no fight left. There was, there was nothing to fight because I was it. The, the feeling was of, you know, being vastness. It was like, it was like, imagine if you could feel what it would be like to be, to be nature, not to be in nature, but to be nature. Like that's what that's, that was the feeling. And I was gone in that moment. And, you know, I, I, that was the experience for eight seconds. It was just like, whoo, and whatever that was, I was going to do whatever. And, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, but unfortunately what happened in my journey at that point was, I tried to recreate that for years, I think eight years or something like that, maybe seven years. I tried to recreate that experience and that like is just flogging yourself. And like, I immediately took this thing that was my nature that I got a taste of and I made it a goal and I made it effort and I made it something that I had to achieve to be good enough. I, I, I turned it into all of these things that were, that were, that denied the the 
the nature of what I had experienced. I immediately co-opted or my brain immediately co-opted it and was like, and I would literally, I remember like sitting, meditating, trying to effort myself back into that experience, experience again, not ever recognizing for, for years that it was, it, it, it was received. It wasn't created. Mm. It's like your memory of the experience ended up taking the shape of all of the blocks that would stop you from being in that experience all the time. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a great way <laughs> to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, but the, so that was the unfortunate part about it. The fortunate part about it was that, um, I was like, that's when it opened up. I'm like, I will fucking take any tool. I will do anything. I will travel to wherever and do whatever to get that back. And so the, the benefit is that when I was doing that, I, I, and, and because of my fierce like will that I was taught and the fierce like self-independence, the, I, I just went for, in my conditioning, I just went for every possible tool that I could ever find and just tried it out. And, and I was doing that, like I did that with, instead of working for most of, you know, most of my for the most of the next eight years, I, I just did that all the time. So like late twenties, early thirties mm-hmm. yeah, until about 35. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just mm-hmm. constantly this therapy, this course, this, I was there, I was in it. And, and, and the, what I didn't know till later was, um, I, cause I've seen some people go into that space and it, and it happens, but like all the psychological stuff, all the emotional stuff is still unhealed, undealt with. And so that can get really complicated. Uh, so what was lucky is that not only did I learn a tremendous amount of tools that like, which puts me in a position right now to do the work that I do, but it, I also healed a lot of stuff before I could access that space or before I realized that that was my, that space was my nature, that that was where mm. I rested. And yeah, so there was a lot of work that was done, which was really, I'm very, very grateful for. But the pain, the experience itself was painful as fuck because I was constantly not there. I was constantly trying to fucking be somewhere that I wasn't. I was, con- I was just using it as a way to beat myself up. So all of that stuff just was like, it was painful as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, something that's interesting about, about you in particular to me is that, you know, there's, there's many people who have an intellectual level understanding of like mystic concepts and meditation and all the different layers and levels and the elephant path and all the different things you can do in the neuroscience behind it. And then there's a lot of people that I'm, that I see that have a lot of the felt sense capacity to like reach these states meditating. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something that's less common that I see in you, which is, has had me very attracted to this work is that emotional and psychological layer. And for myself, I've been focusing less on the meditative practice and more on the psychological, emotional stuff, just kind of trusting that the more, the more I work through my emotional stuff, the more I just am in myself as in my natural state and less in my conditioning or whatever, whatever story that is. Yeah. And I'm curious, like for you, what made that, what made it that your path brought you into so much contact with this emotional and psychological side of this? So I think, I think I was just lucky born at the right time, meaning that like I was born at a time when there was free meditation retreats happening for the first time. And, you know, I mean, maybe it started in the sixties and seventies. And so I'm doing it in the nineties 
And I would say the version like 3.0 of psychology was happening where it, like it passed Freud and it had passed some of the other stuff. And there was like this kind of more integrated psychological approach. And so there was just a lot of tools available and I was living in California. So there was just a shit ton of tools available. And I didn't distinguish between a meditation tool and a spiritual tool for whatever reason, my brain was like, I will just take any tool. There's some wisdom. If this tool, if I saw something that affected somebody in a positive way, I was like, I'll do that. And I didn't Mm -hmm. give a shit what it was. I was like, I was very lucky in the fact that I wasn't religious about it. And like some people are religious about like psychology doesn't work. Psychology does work, you know, or some people are religious about it. Like psychedelics work. And some people are like psychedelics don't work. Like I didn't give a shit. If I saw somebody change, I didn't care what you called it. I just did it. And so, and there was just a lot of it available. And I was really lucky. There was like, I, I, I could read non-dual teachers, which I did a tremendous amount. And, and I could read them from like 2000 years of history and cross-culturally. And, you know, I could talk, you know, read a guy who was a heroin addict, non-dual teacher, ex-heroin addict from Holland. And I could read, you know, a. uh, 1200 year old Zen teacher. And like, I had that. And then I could go do the Hoffman process and I could, you know, I had a great therapist and, you know, so it was just, I was just very fortunate. And, and a lot of it, like the introduction to it, a lot of it was Tara who had just started discovering it herself, had just done a retreat or part of a retreat and Simon retreat had a therapist and it was really good. And so there was, so there was like that, I was very fortunate that way. Tara started to open the door and then, and then because I was re- rebellious, I was in this art, artistic community in, in the nineties in San Francisco. And so there was all sorts of alternative things that were happening that I got to try out and I got to see people transform. And anytime mm-hmm. I saw it, I was just like, what are you doing? How get me in, <laughs> you know, like that was the thing. And so I think that's what, what, what I think I just got lucky. Hmm. And, and, but there was, there was something else that happened too, which was, and I know I've told this story, but some part of the recognition that I stopped crying from that early childhood time that emotions were shut down. And I saw that picture of me being made fun of for crying. And I, and I was like, okay, this, I just know something's not right about this. And so that's like what began the emotional inquiry. And also like the relationship with Tara I see this in a lot of relationships. One person kind of holds the emotional and one person holds the intellectual and the intellectual person is like, I'm better than you because you're like out of control with emotions. And the emotional person is like, Oh, I'm not as good as this person, but also fuck you. I'm better than you. Well, Tara was really, (laughs) really willful. And, and so she was just not going to give up. Like, she's like, yeah, I don't care. I don't believe your logic. I don't give it like, you're not smarter than me. Cause she's also like, just, you know, she also knew she had like this crazy brain on her and, and she, but she had done this acting. And so she knew this emotional stuff was important and valuable. And so part of it was just her absolute will to, to just not like, I'm not fucking giving into you, which was, you know, part of her parenting patterns. And so, and that's what I was attracted to, you know, in my, before Tara, I was, uh, you know, I was trying to get over my, my, you know, the, lack of availability of my mom's nurturing. And so I was just seeking it in any woman that I could find it. I was sleeping around tremendously. And it was like, typically like sleep around, they would chase me. I'd be like, no, I'm out of here. And and Tara was the first one was like, I can fucking take her, leave you. And so I was like, oh, that's, you know, like somehow I felt like, oh, I can, I can depend on that because that person, 
that person, that person doesn't need me. And since I couldn't love my own need at the time, I, I, you know, that just felt safe. And so that willfulness, I think was a huge part of me, of me going, okay, like, I'm not going to win this fight, but I'm not going yeah. to, she's never going to agree that I'm better than her because of my intellect. So, and, and I got to see some of the benefits of her emotionality. And so that's, that's also a big part of it. All right. Thank you, Joe. We're going to pause this right here and we're going to come back again in another episode to finish the conversation. Thank you everybody for listening. And if you know somebody who might appreciate what you heard today, please pass this along and share what resonated for you. We love your feedback, so hit us with comments or questions through our website, Circle Community, or tweet us at Art of a Comp. You can reach out, join our newsletter, or check out our courses at artofaccomplishment.com.